0: Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa
1: Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Good morning, Lisa, and welcome to episode 77 of the Adoption Connection Podcast.
0: Hi, Melissa. It's really good to be recording today. You know, we are recording on March 17th, just about a week before this is going to come out, and things are changing so rapidly that it's um, leaving us all with a lot of uncertainty. How is your family doing with all the pandemic issues? So our family as a whole is doing really well. We homeschool
1: a couple kids, and we work from home already. So from a really practical level, this hasn't impacted our day-to-day. But I'll tell you that all the different cancellations and the constant ever-changing environment, you know, just last night our state went under, not lockdown, that's probably the wrong word, but you know, all the non-essentials are now closed. So pretty much the only thing open now are grocery stores, hospitals, and pharmacies or something like that. I feel the stress of it all. I can feel it in my body. I don't like a lot of change. I like predictability, and so I am feeling like grumpy, and I'm having trouble focusing, and I can feel like the stress of all the things like in my body, uh, and so I can only imagine our kids and how they're kind of internalizing all of this. Because I can also, at the same time, kind of feel my thinking brain taking over and like kind of talking me off my ledge, and you know, I'm accessing as many tools as I can, you know, but. If I were 10 years, 20 years younger and, you know, in a different spot in life,
0: I would probably be where some of your kids are now,
1: <laughs> to be yeah. quite honest.
0: Yeah, but <clears throat> I'm with you. I um, I just feel this kind of low grade anxiety at different times. Like even I had to go to the grocery store and I only needed a couple of things, but I was looking at all the shelves. First of all, some that were very empty, but then other shelves thinking, should I be buying more? Do we need more? Do I have everything? Have I provided enough for my family? Have I, you know, like it's churning in my head. Am I forgetting something? Is there something I should be doing, something I should have done? And I have to just remind myself that we're okay. We really are okay. Probably my biggest issue right now is with things changing so quickly. A week ago, Claire left for Mexico And just to be with her sister, she's not vacationing on the beach. She's doing ministry in Tecate. And fortunately, it's not an international flight. It's domestic flight to San Diego and then driving across. So that's good. But now I'm thinking, what were we thinking? (laughs) A week ago, a week ago, I was thinking very differently. It's just happening just so rapidly, you know. So we have a plan in place to get her back into the U.S. tonight and then hopefully home on Thursday as planned. But right, it's just this sense of uncertainty, and I know my kids seem right now to be doing pretty well. I think if we have to go into more severe lockdown, it will get harder for sure, but I think it's coming, probably. Yeah, well, our, we talked about this last week. You know, you said as long as the gyms stay open, you'll be good. Well, our gyms are all closed now. <laughs> yeah, ours is closed too. I called yesterday, so school is closed, and then this gym where my boys play basketball for hours and hours is closed. So yeah, things are definitely shifting and changing. Did you get your trampoline? Am I allowed to say that out loud? (laughs) Uh, It is supposed to arrive on Thursday. I'm feeling so good about having made that purchase now. I think it's going to be well worth it, even if it only gets used a ton during this period. But I think it's, it's going to be used for a long time. But yes, I'm feeling like that was a decision. Well done. So if anybody didn't hear our last episode, we were talking about the fact that um, I've got a guy who has loads and loads and loads of energy and we used to have a trampoline and he adored it and it kind of got shabby and we ended up getting rid of it. And just this week, I was thinking, what can I do to get through three weeks at home? And I realized this would be a very good solution. So it's ordered and it's coming. Yeah, I think that was super wise. So shall we get to today's um, guest? Yeah, so
1: this is actually, I think, a pretty fitting topic given the state that we're in. But I invited Eileen Devine to come back, and she had previously done a fantastic episode on parenting kids with brain-based challenges, especially kids who were fetal alcohol affected. And so we'll link to her episode in the show notes she had a conversation in her Facebook group about this idea of acceptance and something I've been calling radical acceptance. And so I really wanted to pick her brain about it. And so if you haven't had a chance to interact with Eileen, she lives in the Pacific Northwest and she's a licensed clinical social worker and she has over a dozen years of clinical experience but she's also an adaptive mother of a child with fetal alcohol syndrome, and she believes that kids do well if they can, and that when we understand the way a child's brain works, we can then understand the meaning behind challenging behaviors. And so she helps parents not only sup- to feel supported and more competent and confident in connecting with their child from this brain-based perspective, but she also is really good at recognizing the experience of the parent of a child in these situations. And so that's kind of what we tackled in this interview. Well, let's jump into your conversation with Eileen.
2: Eileen,
1: welcome back to the Adoption Connection podcast.
2: Thank you so much. It's great to be back.
1: So we're going to tackle a really important topic. It's something that I talk to families a lot about, and you had mentioned it in your Facebook group a couple months ago, and it kind of struck a nerve with me. And I thought, she would be a great person to come back and talk a little bit about this because you did such a great job talking to us about kind of the neural behavioral model and some mindset shifts that we can take with our kids. Um, And we'll definitely link to your other episode where you joined us um, in the show notes. Um, But can you talk to us just a little bit about this idea of acceptance and why it's important?
2: If you're the parent of a child with special needs of any kind, I think there's um, all different kinds of reasons why it's important, but I do think there's a unique, a uniqueness to being the parent of a child with an invisible disability, like a neurobehavioral condition, whether those are brain changes brought on by trauma or prenatal substance use or emer- uh, uh, neuroimmune conditions. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, right? We know that based on research. But where it gets really confusing for us as parents is that we can know that intellectually, but the child that we see before us every day looks quote unquote neurotypical. And so that process of acceptance is going to be harder if we're entrenched in this behavioral mindset that does not allow us to see the full impact of what that disability means for them. Now be because their invisible disability of the brain requires accommodations for them to be successful, those accommodations come from us, right? And, that, and they can only be developed We can only be successful in developing those if we understand intimately what it means for our child to have this brain based disability. So, if we haven't accepted that and the full weight of that, if we don't know really what that means for our child, we've not gone through all of those kind of muddy waters (laughs) of acceptance and everything that can be, then we are not going to be able to parent them in the way that we would, that we all desperately want to, really. Um, but more importantly, the way that they need us to.
1: Yeah, that's really important. So we reached out to the Adaption Connection Facebook community and kind of asked them what their questions were around this topic. Um, And so we got back a lot of really good ones. So we're going to just kind of tackle some of those as we go. The first one was, how does acceptance look different than permissiveness?
2: That is a great question. (laughs) And the, the work that I do one-on-one with parents, we always get to this somehow, because I think it's just our natural inclination to kind of hit up against that, bump up against that, right? And it looks different for all of us. And it's absolutely a huge part of this topic of acceptance. So, you know, when I think about permissiveness versus um, acceptance, I think about if we had a child who had a very visible disability. So if we had a child who, um, say, didn't have any mobility from their waist down, they were in a wheelchair. Um, And they required not only the wheelchair to get into the school building, for example, but they required someone to push them up that ramp every day. I don't think any of us would ever look at that and say, am I being too permissive, right? Should I really start pushing her to get out of the wheelchair and walk, right? I mean, that seems ludicrous to all of us, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) Yet when we have a child who struggles with these seemingly simple tasks, because they're lagging in cognitive skills because of the way their brain has been impacted, we constantly are fighting that, like, is this skill or is this will? Could they do it and they just don't want to? When, if we can take a step back and understand, this is their brain-based disability. There are things that they do not have the capability to do now and you know, possibly way into the future, well beyond what we ever imagined. And so to be accommodating for that is not permissiveness. It's actually a part of that acceptance that I was talking about earlier, understanding the full weight of what those cognitive changes mean and accommodating them accordingly so that they can live in the real world, quote unquote, real world successfully.
1: Yeah, I like that. I think sometimes because the accommodations we're making for our kids with invisible disabilities, can be looked at as permissiveness in, in other cases. It's so cut and dry with physical disabilities. You know, if you have a mm-hmm. child who can't walk, then we know they need a wheelchair. Um, and the definition of their disability is very black and white.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in cases where our kids have invis- invisible disabilities, how important is it for us to draw this line between kind of what they can and can't do? um, how do we, how are we sure that it's an accommodation for something that they really can't do? Uh, you know, when there's not, you know, like, especially for fetal alcohol diagnoses, which I know you work a lot with that, like, you know, there's no actual test, right? We can have a diagnosis. And so we know certain things, but does it matter or do we always err on the side of accommodation?
2: Um, I would say it's both. I think it does matter. (laughs) and it's a very human process to want to figure that out and know that, and also we should err on the side of this is about skill and not about will. So really starting from this idea, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with Dr. Ross Green and his work, Collaborative Problem Solving, and his whole thing is kids do well if they can. If they could do well, they would. So if they're not, there is something else going on. They don't want to they don't want to be pushing away from us and have friction and be ruining everything and disrupting everything and being the child that's always messing everything up right and so if we can understand what's behind that then we can understand how to help them settle in their environment so you know the some of the things that i think about is the neurobehavioral model is not an acceptance for inappropriate behavior and i think that a lot of times that's kind of the pendulum swing that parents make it's like well, I have to believe that everything is about brain function. And so it just is the way it is. Like they disrupted our family gathering again. Well, that's just who they are. That's because they can't settle in that environment. And that is not, that is not fair to them. And it's not an accurate portrayal of this, this neurobehavioral mindset that we're talking about. Um, The other piece is looking at, well, they disrupted that family gathering that's happened many times. Well, why is that? What's the pattern and how do I address it with them? Because I think what we're talking about is many times our values get in the way of really fully accommodating and leaning into this idea that it is about skill and not about will. So we have these ideas about what it means to be quote unquote responsible, what it means to be empathetic, what it means to be um, you know respectful, all of those sorts of things. And if we ha- if we have a child who be- whose behavior is is um, in conflict with that, then I think if we don't do the, the work of taking a step back and really figuring out, well, what is that about? And how can I teach them responsibility in this framework of how their brain works, right? Um, then we're going to constantly either stay stuck and say, oh, it's it's all about, well, they're trying to manipulate me, they're lazy. And then we're going to get stuck in that place. Or we will feel completely disempowered <laughs> and say, well, that's just the way they are, right? I guess I just have a child who's because of their disability, they're just going to behave this way all the time. And that's not the case either, right? So really, I mean, I think what, where the, the tiring work comes in and parenting differently in this way is that it does work and you start to see your child settle and everything becomes you know, um, more calm in your household, more positive experience as a family, but it is work. It's this very intentional taking a step back dissecting, reflecting, figuring out what led to what, um, and that there's no finish line to that, right? I mean, I've, I have um, a daughter with uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I've been parenting this way for a very long time and still on a daily basis. <laughs> I'm practicing this, right? Um, and it's much easier, and I'm very, very aware of where I get stuck. I'm very aware of my triggers, so I can anticipate that. doesn't mean that they're not there, though, right? Because I'm human. So really making sure that I proactively address that and make sure that I'm clear on where that is so that I can still continue to move forward and parent her in this way.
1: Mm, I appreciate your distinguishing kind of the two sides of the swinging pendulum because we talk a lot about The difference of kind of structure and nurture, and how we need high amounts of both. A lot here on the podcast, Um, and we find that often parents are swinging one way or the other. Maybe they came into a more relationship-based parenting model from a high structure model, but now they're they've swung the other way, and so now their child kind of has all the power in the house, is walking all over them, kind of like you were talking about with this idea that acceptance is kind of like giving up, like you know this is Mm -hmm. the way it has to be. So kind of along that lines how do we know the difference between behavior we should kind of accept, radically accept and behavior we should help
2: change? Yeah. So I think it's important to understand that, like I said, the neurobehavioral framework is never an excuse for inappropriate behavior. Behavior. So if a child is um, abuses, abusive in some way, if they're saying hurtful things, if they're destroying things in your home, um, if they are going inward and, um, you know, um, isolating in their room all day, all of those kinds of things. Those are secondary behaviors. And I don't think the answer is, well, this is the way it's going to be. We just talked about that. Um, So how do you know what to radically accept and what behavior you try to change? And I think it's actually a really delicate balance of both. And so an example of this would be if you have a child who's say 13 years old and all you expect of them is that they keep their room clean. And you say, I don't have any other expectations of you. The only thing I want you to do is pick up your room and have your room clean. And they quote unquote refuse to do it, right? And you get into these power struggles with them and then things go off the rails very quickly because you're kind of thinking, oh my gosh, this is all I'm asking them to do. They're not being respectful. They're not contributing to the household. If they can't do this now, what when they're 20, what is that going to look like, (laughs) right? All of those future trippings that are so easy for us to kind of um, fall into well if you have a 13 year old who's really six or seven developmentally let's just um, entertain that idea right if you can take that step back and say you know i don't know if this is intentional or not, but for a moment i'm going to allow myself to believe that they're half their age developmentally which we know is um, true of many kids with neurobehavioral challenges and what would a seven-year-old need in terms of support to clean up their room what if My child has no idea what I mean when I say a clean room. They don't know those pieces that make up the whole. What if they have executive functioning difficulties where they can't initiate a task without our help, right? What if they could be successful if I did it side by side and helped them through it? Um, And then I, just like I would a younger child, see if, okay, now I've helped them through it many times. That need to reteach, as we know, is exhausting um, and exhaustive now are they ready to take few steps on their own, right? And to see what happens. Not only does that path of assuming that it might have something to do with brain function lead you to a better place in terms of connection with your child, calm in the household, but you're also allowing them to settle so you're not in this conflict with them where they're kind of amped up all the time so that they can build their skills just like you would a younger child, right? I know that Another example, my daughter is 11, and she has what you probably consider some unconventional eating habits (laughs) at the (laughs) dinner table. And it's been a process even just to have something that has some semblance of a dinner time, family dinner experience. So we're very happy to have that after many years of accommodating and trying to figure out how to make that work for our family. Um, But I know that one of my triggers is her um, unconventional eating habits, right? It's um, it's it's it doesn't settle well with me. I also know because I've thought a lot about this that part of that is my fear behind it of oh my gosh if she's doing this at home, what must she look like at school in front of her <laughs> peers? And she desperately wants friends. And I know that if she's eating this way in front of her friends and her peers, nobody's going to want to eat with her, right? So I have to really work on that myself and not say I accept this behavior because I know she can't do better. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, I know she can't do better. This is how she understands, you know, one eats at the dinner table. Knowing that about her does not mean that I then don't do anything about it. I'm constantly circling back as she's able to tolerate and saying, Hey, can we talk about what happened at the dinner table tonight? It was so wonderful that you were able to sit and (laughs) be, you know, whatever we've been working on, right? Whatever she's like been able to do now. Um, but can I tell you what it would be like for somebody if they were sitting next to you and you were doing this or that, right? Helping her understand someone else's experience, put herself in someone else's shoes, painting the whole contextual picture of what that might look like to a room full of people. That's totally lost on her, right? And she's looking at me and I can tell she's getting it because she's like, oh, she doesn't wanna be seen that way. She doesn't wanna be embarrassed in front of her friends, right? Now, does it mean the next time we sit down for dinner that her behavior's gonna change? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was that quick. And for neurotypical children, often it is. But for her, it's not. It's going to take months and months of that conversation happening. So I have accepted that that is who she is. That is how her brain works. That's part of her differences. It's not a character flaw. It's not her just being gross, trying to whatever, you know we want to assume about that from that behavior lens. And also, I don't just let it go and say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. It's circling back at a time when she settled, when she can actually hear what I'm saying, accepting that need to reteach her over and over and over again. And knowing that eventually, I don't know when it will be, but eventually she'll start to integrate that into her learning and be able to do something differently. Mm,
1: gosh, it's so much work, Eileen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> It is. There's no doubt about that.
1: <laughs> so the next question kind of piggybacks on that, as we prepare our kids to live in the real world, right? Where not everyone's gonna have um accepted what their invisible disability is, maybe not even know because it is invisible. Mm-hmm. People will not know or be able to accommodate our kids in the same way that we often are in a much closer, intimate environment. This person asks, is there ever a time for us to accept that some consequences are necessary, even if it seems like they don't
2: really help? Yeah. (laughs) I think they've answered their own question. (laughs) Why would we use consequences if they don't help? What is the point of them? There is no point of them. We're just wasting our energy. So I'm assuming by that question that she's talking about, the consequences that we impose, that we create, that we decide upon for our kids, And there's lots of reasons, again, rooted in neuroscience research about how kids' brains work differently, why consequences don't work, in in addition to sticker charts and kind of some of those other quote-unquote tried-and-true behavior modification practices. So I think this this question of how do our children learn to live in the real world is um, an interesting one because I think that sometimes we underestimate their ability to understand how their brain works differently and how they can grow in terms of understanding what accommodations they need. This is going to look very different across the spectrum of neurodiversity. Um, But there was an interesting thread in the Facebook group today about um, how do I start talking to my child about this? That was the basic question. And I am always of the the mindset that you start talking to your child about their brain differences um, at an age where they can understand it. So again, thinking about their age developmentally. But even at three and four, five, they can still understand what it means to have a brain that works differently. They can start to understand that spectrum of neurodiversity um, so that as they get older, they recognize, this is really hard for me, but I understand why it's hard. Like, I'm not stupid. I'm not always a problem. I'm not always ruining everything. I actually have a problem that makes things much, much more difficult for me than my peers. But I'm learning through mom and dad or whoever it might be Um, that there are things that I can do about it right there's ways that I can accommodate myself in my practice I actually work with um, a few adults who have FASD and um, I was just meeting with one of them yesterday and he sends a timer he was telling me yesterday about how he sets the timers leading up to our appointment so that he doesn't miss it and he set it one at ten minutes and then he got sidetracked it and he's like thank goodness I set that one at two minutes Else he would have missed it, right? So he has learned over time, like that's what it takes, multiple timers, you know, all the way up to two minutes before we're supposed to meet. The other thing that I think is important for us to continuously be thinking about is who is that village around our children, who is that community that can continue to support them outside of us, right? Because as parents, are, um, we have an awful lot we can do, but it's so, made so much easier with a village, a community of people who understand our child in this way as well. So that constant education and advocacy of people who are in the communities that they, you know, venture into is really important as well.
1: Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, I found that it takes a lot less to survive in the real world than I was initially taught. You know, there are people out there who are compassionate and making accommodations for our kids and giving them the benefit of the doubt, Mm -hmm. Um, probably more so actually than I am at home just because I have to live with it all day.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and then going back to this whole topic of acceptance, I mean, I, I don't know what it's been like for you, but for me as a parent, that's absolutely been part of that acceptance process. And other people, like you've talked about, People who are outside of our home, who see our child through this different light and are able to do it maybe much more easily than, than us for a whole host of reasons, but that has helped with that process of acceptance, right? Mm-hmm. I, um, and then these ideas, too, about what we imagined our child would do at a certain age, what we imagined their adult life might look like, and, and accepting that it might look different and going through that grief, that sadness, whatever that might be in that process of acceptance to get there. I remember when I was when my daughter was very small and um, a family member said to me do you think she'll ever live on her own and I was so taken aback by that <laughs> and I, I it had not crossed my mind and I was like well of course she will I mean it had not crossed my mind and now that she's 11 and I have a much 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 better understanding of her needs and the accommodations she requires I'm like you know who knows I don't want to underestimate her but there's there's Pretty high likelihood that she won't live without supports, right? And so that's that. It didn't go from that to, to where I am today in one fell swoop. Like that has been a process a process of acceptance and and all of the ways that you know quote unquote launching into the real world can look like for our kids.
1: Yeah, and I think sometimes the flip side of acceptance is a grief process. You know, in terms of saying goodbye and letting go of some of those expectations that um, and visions of what our okay. kids' feature
2: would look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if you're familiar with, I'm I'm guessing you're familiar with Brene Brown. Most Mm -hmm. people are, Um, but she has her book Rising Strong, which I highly recommend to anyone who has not read it. Um, It's not specifically for parents of kids with extraordinary needs, but it's so applicable to that experience. And she talks about um, this idea that the opposite of um, recognizing what we're feeling is to deny our emotions And when we disengage from those tough emotions, they don't go away. Instead, they own us and they define Mm. us. And I think about that a lot with the parents that I work with is grief is one of them, right? But resentment, um, anger, I mean, there's a whole host, a whole wide range of emotions that if we don't step into that and kind of just slowly, gently start to work through it, then they don't go away. We're not tricking ourselves. (laughs) 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 They just own us and they define us. Which, again, means that we will not be in the right headspace, like mentally, spiritually, um, health-wise, to parent these children in the ways that they require, which, as you said, is very exhausting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think sometimes when we try to deny them, they almost get bigger. You know, they grow in the dark, those big feelings. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. So the other piece that, and I don't know where this quote came from, but I love it so much, is... Um, if we can um, have non judgmental curiosity about not just our children's behavior, I mean, that's one way to see that, but if we can have non judgmental curiosity about our own experience and our own emotions, no matter what they are, the whole range of them, then just by the nature of being curious, we're asking them to get bigger. We want to know more about them, right? Instead of kind of pushing them away, trying to bury them. And that alone reduces that feeling of like shame, like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling like this this is my child. How could I ever experience that feeling about them? Right. Just that process alone. And then once you know it and you can call it something, right, you can identify it, then you better know what you're dealing with and you know better what you're dealing with and you can start to wade through it.
1: Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, how do we take this type of parenting and this acceptance, different expectations, different kids, if we're parenting, you know, more than one child. Um, it's a lot on our mental plates to manage all the expectations for all the kids. And maybe some of our kids are neurotypical and some of them aren't. So what does that kind of look like practically, maybe both in our minds, <laughs> knowing that like one child, we can have that dinner time conversation about appropriate behavior once or twice with, and then never have to ever again, except maybe, you know, teenage boyhood or something like that. And then <laughs> <laughs> um, other, you know, our other kids where it it feels almost like consequences, right? We're saying it every day at dinner and it feels like it's not working, you know, and, and that definition of, you know, um, insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. <laughs> um, so how do we manage uh, multiple kids, multiple expectations?
2: Yeah. That's a great question. So I think the first thing that I would say about this is that it goes back to that that idea of, well, the importance of having conversations about neurodiversity and how brains work differently with your whole family. So not with just the child who's impacted, but with siblings as well and what that looks like. And that we're all somewhere on that spectrum of neurodiversity, right? There's things that I have more trouble with from a cognitive skill standpoint than, say, my husband. And so being able to, to show those examples, or if I go to the store and I forget to get something and my kid's like, oh, mom, you forgot it. And I say, well, I know that's how my brain works differently. <laughs> I didn't write it down, right? Using those examples so that it's not just this child is different, right? We all are on this spectrum somewhere. And your brother or your sister has a lot of challenges because their brain works so differently, right? So you probably have heard, lots of parents have heard the phrase, fair does not mean equal, we talk a lot about that in our house. I have, I've talked about my daughter who's 11. I have um, a, what we would consider a neurotypical son who's 12. They're only 15 months apart. Um, and so what they're able to do, it looks very, very, very different, right? They're, they're, they're chronologically close in age. They're very different in terms of skills. And so we're constantly having that conversation about what is fair is that mom and dad meet each of your needs fully it's not going to look the same and there's really good reasons for that. And I know that's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard to accept that. Sometimes it's hard for adults to accept that sometimes. Right. Um, I do have on my website, I have a blog post about siblings in this experience and um, you know um, ways that you can be more mindful of their experience in it. But I do think it starts with that education piece. And then also as a parent, knowing again, intimately what each child needs and how they're unique from their brother or their sister. Um, So like you said, at the dinner table, knowing that one child is going to struggle immensely with that seemingly simple environment and task of just sitting and eating and having a conversation, right. Where other um, siblings, it may not be difficult for them at all. And so knowing what does that look like just because it's easy for one, we don't punish the other because it's hard for them. We know that their skills are in different places. We have an understanding of exactly what skills are at play there, what's getting in their way, and how to accommodate them.
1: Yeah. And and siblings that are close in age, maybe you have a neurotypical sibling that starts to imitate kind of inappropriate behaviors of another sibling who has, you know, neurodiversity. And you know that this neurotypical kid, you know, doesn't need that accommodation at the dinner Mm -hmm. table or, you know, Mm -hmm. how do we? especially, and I would assume this probably goes for kind of younger kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where they're like, they just want to do what Big Brother is doing and it's okay, you know, okay, you know, air quotes here for that mm-hmm. child, but then the expectations different. How, how do we parent that? How do we raise the bar for, you know, our kids mm-hmm. when we know that they can? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So I think one question that would be um, helpful to always ask is why, whatever it is that I'm requiring one child to do, and I understand the other child can't, and so I'm not requiring that of them, is it really important for either one of the children to do? Because there are some like very low hanging fruits that we have these preconceived ideas about. Like let's take dinner time, for example. When my daughter was at the place where she literally could not sit still for one second, she was kind of buzzing around the entire room the whole dinner time, but we were happy with that because she wasn't in other rooms, she was still in our space. And we would offer her a chair, and a lot of times she'd say no, and she'd just kind of move and eat and move and eat. And my son at that point, they were much younger then, said, well, I want to move. Can I get up and move? And I was like, sure. (laughs) Because... I thought, why not? Like, what is the harm in letting him move too if he truly wants to do that, right? So that would be the first question. Now, I know there's other things that are not that benign, that are like not that low risk that we're talking about here. And I think what else is important to have the sibling who's younger, who's imitating the behavior to understand why it's not okay, right? Again, circling back with them and talking to them about why it wasn't okay for brother and sister to do. We don't do that in our families. But also for them to hear the gentle, loving conversations that you're having with the sibling in that circling back conversation that has the neurodiversity um, that has the, the brain differences, so they understand that that conversation is taking place there too.
1: Yeah. So, what are some signs that our kids show us that they're kind of ready to be pushed a little bit further? The bar is ready to be raised. And what are the signs that we see that you know we're asking them to do something that's really above their ability?
2: Yeah. So I think that this comes through observation and reflection. I don't think there's any magical formula or tool except to, you know, I, I encourage the parents I work with to spend five minutes a night reflecting on different things. What, what went well, what didn't, what secondary behaviors, like those behaviors that, the, that are going on that show us that the child's experiencing distress, the environment isn't set up perfectly for their brain differences, all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that I um, encourage them to do is to look for those opportunities where um, their child might be growing in skills that they didn't observe before. They just haven't, they've kind of put on the back burner, haven't really looked at. And how can they like slowly test those waters to see if more independence is, is needed? And again, if you go back to the way that a very a younger child kind of grows into these skills, we test the waters there too. And when we understand like, ah, no, that they didn't, they weren't able to do that, we pull back we give them more support and then later on something tells us we've observed something that maybe they're ready so what gets tricky with these kids is that I'm sure that your listeners have experienced um, one of the executive functioning skills that many of these kids lag in is their ability to tolerate frustration or distress and so they have a really really small window of tolerance compared to their neurotypical peers and if we stretch that too much, then boom, their thinking brain is offline and they've kind of gone from zero to 60 in two seconds, right? And so we have to be super delicate with that, kind of giving them very little, little additional pieces of responsibility or whatever it might be, seeing how that goes. If we start to see those secondary behaviors, those like just subtle signs of them being in distress, getting frustrated, whatever it might be, pull back, right? Pull back, give them more support and then try again. So I had had this happen recently with um, my daughter. We, she had a bus schedule that had changed by 10 minutes. I didn't want her to lose any more sleep. So I wanted her to be able to sleep as much as she was before, but still get on the bus in time. And part of that morning routine was, well, can I have her um, do as much independently as I was before? I had slowly been telling her like verbally prompt, okay, now go brush your teeth. And she could go and I could see her brushing that kind of thing. Well, when, when the bus schedule changed by 10 minutes, I had to pull back, right? I knew that that was too much for her. That independence that she had gained slowly, slowly, slowly over time, that I needed to add more support because of that changing environment, right? Um, so whenever, whenever you give your child some additional responsibility that you think maybe they're ready for it, that's observe for it, right? Observe and see how they react. What are they telling you by their behaviors? Can they handle this? And if not, pull back and reassess.
1: Yeah, that's good. Um, Can you distinguish for us quickly between primary and secondary behaviors?
2: Oh, sure, yeah. So primary characteristics or primary behaviors are those behaviors that reflect brain function or brain differences, I should say. So the way I think about them is they're our best insight into how a brain might work differently. So they're behaviors like a child can only do one step at a time instead of three that's showing us that their brain works differently in terms of learning and memory. If a child gets stuck in behavioral loops or verbal loops, that's showing us that they don't have the executive functioning skills to transition out of that cognitive state, so to speak, independently. Um, So that's primary characteristics. That's what we accommodate for because when we don't accommodate for those differences, differences in processing speed, sensory systems, executive functioning, and it goes on and on and on. (laughs) Um, That is when there's a poorness of fit because those differences aren't recognized. They aren't accommodated for. And the result of that are secondary behaviors and parents have no trouble identifying those. Those are the aggression, the meltdowns, the anxiety, the depression, All of those behaviors that are telling us, this environment isn't working for me, there's a poorness of fit here, I'm experiencing pain and discomfort, right? Um, So when we can accommodate for those primary characteristics, understand that our child cannot transition independently, understand that our child cannot think abstractly, all of those different things, then those secondary behaviors calm down in intensity and frequency and we start to see them settle in their environment.
1: Thanks for that. You started to talk to us about a reflection practice that you have parents do daily. Are there any other practices that we can do as parents to help kind of move us closer to this mindset of acceptance and being able to kind of play the long game with our Mm -hmm. kids? And I know you have um, a free reflection journal to offer Mm -hmm. folks. Can you talk a little bit also about that and why you think it's important?
2: Yeah, so I think the process, like, um, all of us, parenting in general, but especially if you have kids with, um, intense needs, it's, um, it's chaotic. It's busy. We're tired. All we want to do when we have a minute to ourselves is either, you know, do something that's mind numbing (laughs) and gives us a break or go to bed, right? Get more sleep. And so the thought of doing this regular reflection, um, practice can seem exhausting. And that's why I say don't ever spend more than five minutes a day does not need to be more than that. But that five minutes a day builds upon itself. And it allows you to see patterns in yourself and the way that you react and the way you're responding. And it also helps you see those patterns in your child, because parents will say, I don't know what happened. So chaotic, it just came out of nowhere. I say, I know it seems that way, but there's always patterns. And the way that you recognize those patterns is to observe and reflect on them. And you can't do it in the moment because as we know in the moment, we're not in our thinking brain. (laughs) Um, We're not in the right mindset to do that. Same as our kids. when they're kind of, um, you know, after a meltdown, they're emotionally dysregulated. So that's the importance of it. Um, What we know, and I'm sure that many of your guests have talked about this in one way or another, is that when our nervous system is healthy, that improves our child's ability to regulate and, um, you know, maintain their calm and grow in their skills and all of that kind of stuff. And so when we have a fragile nervous system, and we're interacting with our child who also has a very fragile nervous system, it's just going to be that constant kind of, you know, um, dysregulation or just explosions or whatever it might look like. So the work starts with us. That's why I say half of this neurobehavioral coin is the work that we more than half is what we do for ourselves having that health um, spiritual health mental health physical health um, in check so the other piece that um, many parents say is I don't I can't possibly find the time for another thing and I understand that intimately I don't think that's an excuse I think that is truly the way they perceive it and also There's always time to take five minutes. There is something you can shift in your day to take five minutes to do this practice. And that that's not the end point. That's the starting point. But it's a starting point and it lays a really nice foundation in order to build and um, get to a healthier spot emotionally, spiritually, and physically yourself. The other piece that I think is really important is to find a community of people who understand what you're going through and can lift you up people who have gone before you <laughs> and can tell you it's going to be okay um, and people who are right in the spot that you're in. But to be sure that it's, it's a community and a place that does that lifting up because we know that that caregiver fatigue and that compassion fatigue is contagious. And so if it's a community where all that's happening is venting, 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 and there's nothing then being um, talked about in terms of, well, how can we get to a better spot? but that's only going to bring you down further. That is not good for your nervous health system, right? But to be able to vent, to be seen, to be heard, and then have people say, let's talk about how we can get you to a better place. That is the key. That also helps tremendously.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. I know that this is a topic that really is going to become foundational for a lot of parents um, because it does set the groundwork for so many of our own behaviors as parents, which then, as we know, has radical influence on our kids, and unfortunately, we can only control ourselves. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so that that neurobehavioral reflection journal that you mentioned, um, that I have for parents, it um, it's fourteen days, and it's it's really just to get folks started and kind of give them prompting questions to get started with this process. But um, it alternates every day between. Let's observe your child, reflect on your child, and then let's reflect on you and your experience. And it goes back and forth because those two sides of the coin are so important. Because you're right. Yeah. Our we are only, we are human, and so we are going to have triggers, right? Despite even if we think they're petty, we can take a step back and say, gosh, get a handle on yourself. That's <laughs> that's so insignificant. It's just not for some of us, right? <laughs> and and accepting that as piece of it and then saying, okay, but I can do something about it. I always have a choice, right? I always have a choice. So,
1: well, Eileen, again, thank you so much for being here with us. I know that this will be super valuable to our people and we appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always
0: fun to chat with you. (laughs) That was such a good interview. I'm so glad to have Eileen back on the podcast. She's just got a ton of wisdom that is so applicable to our lives. In fact, I really appreciated examples she gave of her daughter and her daughter's issues with eating. Even getting her to the table has taken a very, very long time, it sounds like. And the effort that she's making to continue working with her daughter and not just accept the Behavior as it is, but to just keep circling back and trying to help her daughter learn the skills she needs in order to eat in public or eat with friends. It, the, of course, the humorous part was when she said, um, Will she remember tomorrow? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> I, just, I just had to laugh <laughs> because that's how it feels, right? We just keep repetition over and over and over again. But I did appreciate that she said, You know, we don't have to just accept the behavior, we can continue working toward the goals of of better behavior. Yeah, the radical acceptance
1: isn't accepting kind of an inappropriate situation for us all, but it's accepting the amount of support and accommodation and the repetition that our kids will need to move through a situation.
0: Right. I thought that was really, really helpful. She also talked about a journal that she has for our listeners Yeah, it's a 14-day reflection
1: on your neurobehavioral parenting journey. Um, We'll put a link for how to grab that journal in the show notes. She also mentioned something that, of course, we're super passionate about here at The Adoption Connection, that being surrounded by a community who understands your life, a supportive community that understands but also continues to challenge us. Uh, push us forward, not just kind of wallow in the venting of how hard our life is, that there's this balance, is really, really important. With that recommendation, we want to invite you to join us in community because we feel like that is one of our strengths, is gathering you all together to be able to say, me too, to have a safe place to share your frustrations. Because you know, it's easy to say on paper, we can radically accept the amount of accommodation and repetition that our child needs, but man, it is really, really hard. And so we get that. It's definitely easier if we're doing it in community. So we have two options for you if you're looking for community. One is a Facebook group, totally free. You can find it at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. And it's a pretty large group, but it's a kind, safe place and to interact with other folks who get it. If you feel like you just need a higher level of support, that you really want kind of more face-to-face interaction, more intimate relationship with other moms, then we would invite you to join the village, where we do coffee chats three to four times a month, and get to know each other really well, where we're interacting in real time through video chat, and so you can find out more about that and joining that at The Village, um, which is theadoptionconnection.com village.
0: So we will have links to everything we've mentioned in our show notes. We'll have a link for Eileen's uh, free download and where you can find The Village and the Facebook group all in the show notes at theadoptionconnection.com slash 77.
1: and was created by Lee Rosevier